Welcome to the Parlay Podcast, a thought-provoking and entertaining podcast that breaks down the pathology of speech, language, and other processes that affect the way we communicate on a daily basis. Professor of Speech and Language Pathology, Chantal Mayer-Crittenden, hosts a bevy of guests who help her explore and explain the diverse landscape of speech, language, and their relationship with the brain. Okay, season three, episode two already. I'm happy to be here and happy to have my guest, Laura Wolford. She is a speech and language pathologist, a professor, and also a sex educator. Hi, Laura. Hi, Chantal. I'm glad to be here. Great. So can you maybe tell us a little bit more about yourself? I didn't really give a a very long biography. So maybe who are you and uh, a little bit about what you're doing right now um, as your speech and language pathology job and professor and whatnot? Absolutely. So yes, I am a person who wears many hats and I'm somewhat difficult to, I have a difficult time pinning myself down. (laughs) Um, I am the founder for The Language for Sex, which is a website that is teaching speech pathologists how to talk about sex, intimacy, and consent with their clients. I also am an education researcher. My, uh, the basis of my research is how do we get medical professionals and specifically SLPs to uh, do hard things, to feel confident doing hard things, to feel like they have the skills to do hard things. I started my research in the area of teaching SLPs to do transnasal endoscopy and giving them more confidence. And yeah, this is a thing you should be doing. This is a thing that you should be seeking out more opportunities to do. This is like, don't be scared. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have very much transitioned at least a little bit to how can we teach SLPs to feel more confident and comfortable talking about these difficult topics like sex and intimacy with their clients. And you know, you can do this. It, it's okay. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that it's, it's brilliant, really. And it's not something that I, uh, 18 years ago, learned about in school. And I don't think I mean, I'm still in the university setting. And it's definitely not something that's part of our curriculum. Is it in yours? Maybe it is because you're, you might be talking about it. But is it uh, written down black on white in your curriculum? No, it is not something that we, you know, um, it is not something that we directly address on purpose. It's something that I am trying to infuse in my coursework, just little bits here and there. Um, but it's not something that we have written down as a goal necessarily. I have been asked, so I started this website, um, a month and a half ago, not even. That's not been a very long time. And already I've been asked to speak to, I think it's four different universities, graduate counseling classes mm-hmm. about sex and intimacy. So I think it's something that universities are realizing, oh, this is a thing. This is something that's important. This is something that it's kind of a problem that we don't have in our curriculum, mm-hmm. um, but they're not necessarily sure how to address it yet because it it's just not something that we've traditionally done. That's right. Well, I think in society, sex is something that has been taboo for so long, right? Oh, and so, so it's much. no surprise that it's not a part of our curriculum. So something the language for sex everywhere. That's right. The language for sex.com is the website if you want to check it out. And so how did you get involved in this? 
It's been a long road for me, somewhat surprisingly. About five years ago, I was at a friend's birthday party and an acquaintance approached me and told me, hey, my husband had a stroke. I hear you do speech things. Right. <laughs> uh, as is always the case, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody knows what our title is. Right. Um, I hear you're a speech something. Um, and, you know, he, he had some mild aphasia, maybe a bit of apraxia. He was back to work and he was having a couple of issues there. But, you know, the big problem that she was noticing and he was noticing was in the bedroom, how that communication issue was really impacting their intimate life. And she wanted to know if I had any recommendations. And she was coming at this conversation from such a, a vulnerable place, especially not knowing me really. Um, and I was coming at this conversation from such a vulnerable place because I got really nervous. Mm -hmm. I started thinking, well, who do I refer to her or refer her to? Is it a psychologist, a sex therapist? And mm -hmm. no, I don't know anybody who really knows that much about aphasia. Who really knows about aphasia? Right. Oh, no, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the one that can help this person. <laughs> oh, my gosh. She needs somebody like me, except I'm so uncomfortable having this conversation right now. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, that's probably a bad thing. Um, and so I, I mean, in this moment, I had the, the luxury of time, which I didn't have, you know, sitting in front of a patient in my, in my hospital or at the acute rehab where I was working. Um, you don't have the luxury of time, you got to go. But here I could, okay, you know what, let's step back. I'm going to take a week or two. Give me your number. I'm going to call you back. We're going to have, some, we'll have a chat once I have more information underneath my feet. Okay. Um, and I realized there was so much information to learn. So mm -hmm. I took a lot of classes. I did a lot of reading. I helped them, but I, since then I've moved much forward. Um, I bet. Yeah, there's a lot out there. Yeah, well, there's a lot out there, but again, it's not easy. It's mm -hmm. not, there's not, you know, in, in speech and language pathology, there's these resources and this one in particular, it's called the source for. So there's the source for swallowing disorders, the source for cognitive <laughs> communication uh -huh. disorder, the source for stuttering, the source, source for voice, etc. Yeah. I really doubt that there's a source for the language for sex. <laughs> you know? There is not. <laughs> Maybe you should think about that one. <laughs> Um, okay, well, I'm really glad that you found interest in this because, like you said, it's definitely something that I, too, believe should be part of our scope of practice um, when helping people who have communication disorders dealing with this. Because even when you're thinking about consent, what's consent if there's no communication, be it verbal or nonverbal? It's all communication, right? Exactly. And so, of course, when someone has a neurological disorder or, you know, born with a developmental disorder that makes them have difficulties with either understanding or using language, it's no surprise that it'll affect intimacy. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so um, we talked a little bit about your, your website. You also have, um, I, I actually stumbled upon your Instagram uh, page a little while back, The Language for Sex. Now, you also have a course that you are offering, and I think that a lot of people have shown interest. Can you maybe talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, so my goal is to have a bunch of courses on this website, but I've started, of course, with one because that's how 
numbers work. That's right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, my first course is free. It's an hour and a half long because apparently I just can't stop talking. Uh, and it's called the SLP Sex Talk. And uh, the uh, general overview of it is to give SLPs a little bit of information about how communication relates to consent, sex, intimacy, relationships, how when a person has a communication disorder, all of that can become much harder. And we have some research into that. Um, and also a little bit about what our scope is, both in terms of what our professional organizations tell us our scope is, and then also in the sex ed and the sex therapy world, how do we fit in? Because we do. Um, there's actually, there's a place for us. And so I think one thing that some SLPs are a little bit concerned about is, well, I don't want to pretend I'm a sex therapist. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be in that realm. I don't want to this isn't my scope, this is somebody else's scope. And in fact, no, that's, that's not true. Um, we very much fit in, in the sex education and sex therapy world. Uh, we just mm -hmm. kind of need to own our position there. That's right. With, with a focus on communication, I mean, sex therapists still have a role exactly. to play. Um, oh, very of, much so. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, I even noticed on your... Um, okay, so actually, let's go back to the course. So right <laughs> now, it's free um, mm -hmm. for a limited time. And how do people sign up? How do they find out about this? So you can go directly to thelanguageforsex.com, and it's in the courses, and it just says take the big free course. I mean, it's big in the, uh, okay. the front page. You can also find it through my Instagram page. It's going to be an extra click, but the Instagram okay. page is at the language for sex. Okay. One thing that I uh, hadn't really thought of. So, you know, as speech and language pathologists, we work with a, a whole realm of different communication disorders. But like you said, oftentimes it's someone, an adult, who may have had a stroke or may have had a brain injury. And so we're helping them communicate, um, be it oral communication, written communication. And in one of your posts, you had written about why not help these people post on Tinder or on whatever dating app that they're using. And I thought, yeah, exactly. This is something that is a huge motivation for them. Um, so may, can you talk to us a little bit about more uh, about that? Yeah, depending on what the patient or client population you're working with is, you a, an SLP who is working with that population may have more or less pushback in doing that sort of work. There is a huge stigma around uh, relationships, having, helping our clients build relationships and engage with their own relationships. Mm -hmm. um, there's a very large stigma, depending on the age group, especially if we're talking about older individuals, especially if we're talking about older individuals who are living in any kind of setting that isn't their own home. So skilled mm -hmm. nursing facilities, assisted living, um, there's a lot of thought that, oh, well, those aren't people that should be dating. Those aren't people that should be having sex. Those aren't people that should be doing anything except for knitting by the fireside, right? <laughs> and that's just not how it works. People want to be sexual. People want to have intimacy mm -hmm. their whole lives. Uh, and that includes into their retirement years. And yeah. so absolutely, we can get these people on, communicating better on their dating sites. A lot of people, that's the big way that they can communicate, especially if their mobility is reduced. Mm -hmm. 
they can't get to other people very easily, then texting, mm-hmm. sexting, right? <laughs> all exactly. of that is how they communicate. And so if it's communication, it's us. Yeah, absolutely. Something else, another hat that we can wear as speech and language pathologists. Now, what are some kind, you know, for people who are listening, be it a speech and language pathologist or someone from the general public, mm-hmm. um, it might not be clear to them how intimacy, sex, and communication, language, speech, how all of that is are connected. So can you maybe talk to us a bit about that? Absolutely. The When I think about intimacy and in our field, I think of sort of two different tracks. I think about sex education for kids, and I think about accessing intimacy and consent and sexuality for adults and people of age. Um, when I think about kids, I think about helping them access the sex ed curriculum. You know, the sex ed curriculum is dense and confusing. And for some people in some situations, it happens once. You're having that sex talk once and then nobody is bringing it up again. And it's full of metaphor and complex language because nobody wants to talk about sex directly. So we talk about the birds and the bees, or we talk about, oh, you know, make sure you're being safe, but we don't actually say what that means. Yeah. Um, and so our kids with language disorders, pragmatic deficits, that's, ooh, that's hard concepts to access. Absolutely. What do birds and bees have to do with this, right? Exactly. <laughs> I still haven't figured it out, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I think there, that's an area where it makes a lot of sense that speech therapists, speech language pathologists would be helping our kids access that information. Um, helping them access an understanding of consent. When we're working with kids with developmental disabilities, Mm -hmm. oh boy, that a lot of times people just touch them without asking. And they need to know that that's usually not okay um, because they've gotten very used to that. And so talking about what the conversation should look like, we don't just touch people without asking. It's not okay for people to just touch us. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when we're working with more adults or people that are more of age, we're thinking about intimacy. Mm -hmm. People with acquired communication disorders are at really high risk for changes to their partnered relationships having difficulty finding romantic partners, you name it. Sex is part of that equation. It's not all of it, but all of it's communication. Um, yeah, so. no, sorry, I, I didn't mean to cut you off. <laughs> no, I, I talked too much. <laughs> no, no, it's great. I love this. And so, again, just because I have a, a very varied um, group of listeners, so you talked about acquired uh, communication disorder. So we've already talked about stroke, brain injury. It can be mm-hmm. any neurological disorder like Parkinson's disease, Huntington's disease, yes. you name it. There are so many. Mm-hmm. Um, so Dementia. any of those, that's right. Any of those can have an impact on on their communication. And so... Um, and, and of course, on their, their relationships. And oftentimes that's what you hear, right? You'll hear after someone has had a stroke or a brain injury or what have you, the relationship changes, the existing mm-hmm. relationship changes. And then if they're, if they're not in a current relationship, then it becomes more and more difficult. And often those people become isolated, right? Yeah, and they wind up taking on this patient role a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very hard to break out of. And so if the person is in a current relationship, then their spouse or their relationship partner winds up feeling that heavy burden of caregiving. And that's somewhat unavoidable, but it's not exactly sexy, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. That's immensely difficult. And so in order to get into that, hey, we are still a viable 
partnership. We are still in a relationship. You are not the nurse and I'm not the patient. We're us Mm -hmm. still. That requires so much communication because the default is this kind of patient caregiver mode. It's easy to slip into that. And so if our clients want to get out of that feeling and start feeling much more like, oh, we're still us, then they they need to have those, they need to be able to have those conversations. Um, And if they have aphasia, if they have some other communication disorder, it's going to be hard. They're going to need to practice. They're going to need the right words for that. Hello, speech language pathology. You can help. And I think it's also about the elephant in the room, right? So, you you know, you can identify it. Okay, you know what? This is, and it could even be done without your client bringing it up. You can say, okay, you know, a lot of clients, once they've had a, a stroke or what have you, might have some difficulties with intimacy. Um, if this is something that you wanted to talk about, I'm here for you. You know, kind of just putting it out there. And some might not want to talk about it right now, but I think when you name it, when you label it, when you when you tell people that, hey, this is something that might exist in your relationship, um, then it becomes a little bit easier to talk about. Like you said, we don't find feel so awkward and, oh my gosh, we said the S word, you know? <laughs> Truly, there's this model called the Plicit model that um, was developed by a sex, uh, sex therapist and psychologist, Jack Annan, and I believe 1976, um, where it's these different levels of like giving your client the space to talk about sexuality and then providing them with what they need in order to move forwards with their sexuality. And the first level is permission. We need to bring it up. Mm -hmm. We need to give them permission to talk about the subject. And a lot of times the way that we do that is, hey, a lot of other people have this issue. Right. You might too. And so they feel like they're not alone and they're not the weirdo who's bringing up sex in their speech therapy session. Right. Just giving them that space can really help them open up. And suddenly you have this very functional thing that you can work on in your therapy. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. But we do, we wind up needing to be the ones to bring it up because everybody thinks that sex is an awkward topic. Yeah. And I mean, I could see that, like you said, especially with the older generations, right? It, it was so much more taboo then. I mean, it still is in today's society, mm-hmm. but I think we've come a long way from, you know, the 1950s when a lot of these um, baby boomers were growing up and, and you did not talk about it. And it was something that was very private. And so they're, mm-hmm. they're still kind of in that mindset. So um, I could imagine it being difficult. Now, what I find interesting as well are what you were talking about, you know, the sex ed for kids. And I I look at these children who might have um, developmental language disorder or autism or be on the autism spectrum disorder. And like you said, a lot of this, um, the sex language is so abstract. And we talk about big words like consent, intercourse. uh, Like, what does that mean, you know, to really give the definition of consent and, and be sure that they understand. In fact, I believe that there are, there is, is some research out there that shows that children, girls, young girls especially, that's what the research was, was um, uh-huh. gave as a result, are more likely to be victims of sexual harassment if they have a developmental language disorder. Mm-hmm. And so that's scary. 
It, it truly is. Um, I am very fortunate to work with a phenomenal sex educator in the New York public schools um, who is currently getting her PhD in human sexuality education. And uh, she says that she works a lot with the speech pathologists in her school because they do a lot of um, Practice maybe isn't the right word, but uh, like interactive games in her sex education classes where they, I mean, I guess it is practice. They're, they're practicing saying no. They're practicing uh, giving consent to things because it's not just all about saying no. Eventually, somebody's going to want to say yes. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's okay. Eventually, kids turn into adults. Right. They need to have those skills too. Um they practice delay tactics where maybe you're not comfortable saying no right now because of social pressures, but you, you might be comfortable in the future. So you want to, you just want to delay having this conversation. And all of that is very, it's communication. It's communication, communication, communication. So she works with the speech pathologist in her school to really get that information across more slowly over a longer period of time than she has available to herself in her two-week course. Right. Um, and I think, again, it was on your Instagram page that I saw, and you kind of touched on that just now, and I'm, I'm trying to see if I can find, but of course, I won't be able to right now. Um, you know, we I often... probably remember it. You probably, we often talk to kids about saying no and, and making sure that they give consent and that you don't have to if they don't want to, but we don't talk to them about if you want to, this is the conversation you need to have, right? Or it was something to that effect. Yeah, we're, I mean, I'm an adult. <laughs> um, uh, I have a one and a half year old. And so we're, I mean, I'm working on consent with her now. Uh, if we're working on communication, we can work on consent, but I, I, understand that feeling of, ooh, if we could wait as long as possible to have you be sexually active, little girl, <laughs> I am sure that I would prefer that when you yeah. are a tween or a teen. You know, that's something that parents, caregivers, were very uncomfortable with the idea that this tween, teen, <laughs> young adults would have sex. It's, it's an yeah. uncomfortable idea. Um, and so we like to push the no, no, no as much as possible, but that never teaches that person how to say yes, mm -hmm. what the information is or the skills that they would want to have are when they say yes. Like I hope that every teen, young adult, whatever, who eventually decides that they are ready to have sex, they have the ability to talk about it with their partner. Mm -hmm. How can they talk about it if they've never had any sort of practice? If the only information they've ever gotten was, you should be saying, no, shut that down now. Yeah. How can they have the skills to talk about it? Yeah. They need to practice. Yeah. We need to talk about it openly. Or the first time is going to be scary. The first time is going to be quiet. Kids will learn this information somewhere, and I hope it's from a trusted adult who can talk about it openly rather mm -hmm. than through the internet and all of the weird stuff that they find there. Oh, exactly, right? I'd much rather it come from me than come from Google and whatever. Exactly. And I'm, I'm right in that uh, stage in my kids' lives. Uh, they're 11, 13, and 15, right? <laughs> so, mm -hmm. Um, and I've always found that we try to have a, a laissez-faire approach about talking about sex. It's, 
the more it's part of our daily conversations, the more natural it is and less awkward it is. And, and it wasn't done overnight. You know, we started exactly. labeling their parts by their names. It was a vagina and a penis when they were young, you know, like we perfect started doing that when they were very young and just openly talk about things. And so, uh, but it's, it is uncomfortable. There are sometimes that, you know, my kid, my kids have asked me questions when we're uh, in the middle of the grocery store and something pops up in their mind and they, they ask it, Oh, all right, we're talking about this right now. You know? This is a discussion we're having. That's right. Um, yeah, and, and so many of us are just uncomfortable having those talks, not just because, you know, society tells us we should be, but also because a lot of us don't feel like we even have that knowledge necessarily. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know what you got growing up, but I got almost nothing. So yeah, how do I talk about something I don't understand? I mean, mm -hmm. I know what my life has been like, but how do I talk about the everyone's sex? What, what is normal if, if I don't really necessarily know? And so many of us don't know. No, and we only know, like you said, what we've experienced, but then, you know, that, you know, if you're, if you're straight, then that doesn't account for the whole LGBTQ community, mm -hmm. if you're, you know what I mean? So we might not, we might be imposing our own beliefs and values onto our children where they might not be in the same frame of mind at all. And so how do we talk about that? How do we address that? How do we open those lines of communication, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's a big one. And, and again, if we're talking about children or adults who have communication disorders I mean this is such a, a difficult topic to address and then you add a layer of okay now these people that we're trying to address this topic with have communication difficulties mm -hmm. so we have to to try to just use very um, concrete language and, and like you said avoid those uh, metaphors and the birds and the bees and, and, and not saying the, the proper terminology. Yeah. And when we, because people are so uncomfortable talking about sex, when they do talk about sex or they're in a situation where they need to talk about sex, of course, they, that autonomic nervous system kicks in. Right. So, <laughs> they, right. That anxiety that, and we know that the autonomic nervous system kicking in, the, that feeling of anxiety, that uh, you're kind of sweating a little bit, that kind of jittery feeling. It's really hard to concentrate then. And it's hard to find the right words and it's hard to put your thoughts together. Honestly, being on a podcast, I'm feeling that right now. <laughs> I, <laughs> and so our clients with communication difficulties, that's going to impact their communication ability in that moment. Absolutely. So we're thinking about what they're like in our office when things are calm and they know that they're safe, hopefully, and they know that we're here to work on communication and multiply that when they go home and it's the first time that they've brought up sex since the stroke. Mm -hmm. It's going to be harder. Yeah. And we, we need to take that into account. And speech pathologists are the ones that are going to understand that, that how that's going to affect their communication in the moment. Yeah, that's true. You make a really good point. Um, they can be comfortable about it in our session, but then you go home and it's a whole different ball game, right? Absolutely. Because then emotions also get involved. And, and like uh -huh. you said, that reflex of, oh, I need, to, I need to run, I need to get away from this situation. <laughs> right, exactly. It's, 
it's just so challenging. And the more you think about it, the more you realize how many layers it has. Mm -hmm. I, one night started, when I first started this website, oh, six weeks ago, um, <laughs> I, I started putting down all of the things that I've been studying for the past five or so years and going, okay, what do I want classes on this website to be? What do I plan for all of this to look like eventually. And you can find it on the site. I think it says coming soon or something. <laughs> and it's pages long. I just word vomited onto the internet. It's pages long because as soon as you start thinking about how communication impacts intimacy, it's almost infinite the ways that it does. Mm -hmm. It's layer upon layer upon layer. Yeah. And then you get real sad that we're not doing this work already. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's why I was so drawn to, to your page, to your website, because I thought, why? First of all, why didn't I think of this? No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I've got enough on my plate as it is. But I thought, okay, <laughs> why, why isn't this part of our, our curriculum as speech and language pathologists? Why is it such a taboo thing? And so I was thrilled to see that you had this. Now, so, so what do we do? So, okay, so this, you know, speech language pathologists, we need to start talking about this. We need to, but what, what are parents supposed to do? Or, or if you're a spouse of someone who has had um, brain injury or stroke or what have you, or if you yourself have difficulties communicating, where did they start? That's a good question. Um, I think for parents of kids who have communication disorders or differences, making sure that they have the right words is huge. I mean, you were talking about making sure that your kids understand that this is a vagina, this is a vulva, this is a penis. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important um, that kids have the correct words to label things, that they have the correct words to that, like verbs <laughs> they, mm -hmm. they can use to talk about sex, they can use to talk about touch. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times that information is very guarded from kids with communication disorders, uh, kids with developmental disabilities, kids that use AAC devices, right? Uh, augmentative devices that yeah. uh, you touch and it speaks for you. Um, it, a lot of times those words just aren't in there. That's right. And so if you don't have access to those words, what are you going to do? You can't have that communication. Mm -hmm. um, there are people right now that are really advocating for those words to be in augmentative and alternative communication devices. Yeah, um, but sure. they're not, I mean, you open up anyone from the factory and you won't find it. Um, so that's, I think that's kind of where we start. That and building consent, letting kids know that it is expected that everyone who touches you Mm -hmm. We'll talk about it first, that you can say no to these things. And in cases where maybe we can't say no super easily, like a shot at the doctor's office where the kid, who the kid wants to say no, yeah. but <laughs> they, they need it, that we're going to talk about why. Like, okay, parent is going to make sure that you get the shot. And here is why. Here's why this is different. Here's why this is important. Mm -hmm. And here's why, even though we don't want the sensation of having a shot, we've kind of got to get through it, right. um, that that explanation is going to happen. I think with adults and family members, loved ones, relationship partners of people with communication disorders, I think the first thing that we need to remember, and this 
this isn't sex specific. This is always, but the first thing that we need to remember is that that person is still that person, mm-hmm. even though they have, even they ha- though they have Parkinson disease, even though they've had a traumatic brain injury, that doesn't make them. My client is not Parkinson disease. My client right. is John, and he happens to have Parkinson yeah. disease. Yeah. Um, he is still a whole person who has all of his same needs and deserves to be able to access every part of himself. Absolutely. And so I think if we remind people of that, everything else kind of falls into place. Mm-hmm. Like you wrote, sexual rights are human rights. Mm-hmm. And communication is a basic human right. So it kind of just goes full circle there. I like that. Exactly. Um, this reminds me when we're talking about consent and, and talking about using analogies and whatnot. I really like the tea analogy. And there's a video that went viral on YouTube a few years ago on how they use drinking tea as an analogy to giving consent. And so it's, it's pretty cute. And I'll put the link to it uh, um, on the show notes at theparleypodcast.com if I can still find it. But basically it says, you know, you might say that you want tea when you get there. And then the person goes up and boils the water and puts the tea bag in the hot water. And then, but then when they bring you the tea, you realize, oh no, I don't want the tea anymore. And so that's okay, right? You can change your mind along the way. So anyway, it's a really cute video. But because it's using an analogy, it's not very clear for anyone who might have a hard time making that connection. So how is drinking tea and having sex and giving consent related? Like to us, you know, anybody with um, a neurotypical brain, Uh it's it's quite obvious, but it might not be. And that kind of, uh, I had a little aha moment because I remember showing my daughter this and my daughter has a developmental language disorder. And that was kind of her first comment. Why are we talking about tea here? (laughs) So... Like, yeah, oh, there's yeah, right. a, um, so in some states in the United States, they have very restrictive laws about what can and cannot be included in sex education. Mm-hmm. I think it was Alabama where, I think Alabama is one of the states where you can't do a condom demonstration. Okay. Um, just not allowed. And so I believe it was Alabama where there's this video of this sex educator that is not giving a condom demonstration. He is demonstrating how to put on a sock. And so he like takes out his foot and he's got his sock rolled up and he talks about like pinching the tip of the sock. So there's plenty of room for your toes and then rolling it down and making sure that you don't double sock. You only do one sock. (laughs) Um, And I don't care who you're putting on socks with, as long as you're making sure that you put on a sock every time, make sure that that sock is on before you put on, put it anywhere near that shoe. Um, And it's, I mean, it's brilliant and it's cute and it's, funny and it's very much made the rounds in the sex educator community like look at what you can do how amazing is this Mm -hmm. and the first thing I thought when I saw that was how amazing are you for being so creative and the second thought I was was this is inaccessible for my clients with language disorders or pragmatic difficulties like this Mm -hmm. okay it's a sock video yeah they're going to be wondering why someone is trying to show them how they can, how to put on a sock. They know how to put on a sock, right? Right. And even if they yeah. get that, okay, condom equals sock. Mm-hmm. Well, 
that's not how I put on a sock. I don't pinch the tip of the sock. So maybe I can do the same thing with the condom. So it, a lot of the ways that we teach sex ed are very inaccessible to Mm -hmm. our clients. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point for sure. This is all so interesting to me. And and again, um, I've talked about this in previous podcasts, you know, especially for kids. So research has shown that kids need to hear the same word about a dozen times in different contexts to really learn that word. Well, if you add a layer of communication difficulties, then that child needs to hear that same word 36 times in 36 different contexts or in many different contexts to Uh fully grasp that word, that new concept. And so, like you said, oftentimes sex ed is something that is taught in passing. There, we've checked that box, move on, phew, that's over, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, for, for even someone with a neurotypical brain, it, it's difficult. And so if you add to that complexity of, of a communication disorder, it's no wonder there are so many issues out there with, with consent, with intimacy, with self-esteem and self-worth when it comes to um, sexual relationships and whatnot. And I would add to that, that, yeah, a lot of times that sex talk, sex ed in the classroom or sex talk in the home, that happens once, maybe twice. But how often are these kids getting that messages from parents, from society, from other people that, Ooh, yeah, that's not something you should be talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, no, we don't, don't discuss sex. No, that's dirty or wrong or weird or whatever it is that society likes to tell kids about mm-hmm. sex. They're getting that message a whole lot more than that one time that they hear, oh, well, you know, make sure that it's consensual, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and so the first time they go to have sex what message is going to be ringing in their head? Yeah. It's going to be that this is dirty and wrong. And then all of those messages from movies that, you know, the man should be the aggressor and Mm -hmm. don't, don't take no for an answer that you should just fall into bed together and then she'll want it. Um, Yeah. That is going to be what is predominant because yeah, you need to hear the same message a lot of times to remember it. And even things like the the Me Too movement, that in and of itself is very complex. What did that mean or what does it mean? It's still still very relevant. Um, There's so much more to it than just what you'll see readily available out there. So we've talked about where, you know, speech and language pathologists can turn to, where parents could turn to. Do you have any favorite resources or anything that I could put on uh, the Parley Podcast show notes that could be a a start? (laughs) I've gotten a couple of questions about that recently. And so I actually made a book list. Um, It is on my website and I will send you a link. Um, Perfect. Yeah. I think my favorite book about sexuality in general that is driven towards adults, but it's not related to communication disorders necessarily is the book Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski. Okay. Uh, It's very much steeped in the neuroscience of sex and the biology of sex, but it is very, very accessible. Okay. Um, Every time I talk about this topic with other adults, I I hear, oh, 
that book changed my life. And oh, so really? if, yes, um, it, it, the moral of that story is you are normal. Pe- mm-hmm. Your experience is normal. You can change it if you want, but your experience is normal. People are different and here's how they are different. Um, it's absolutely a wonderful book. And actually the newest edition came out two days ago. Okay. Um, so I, I, yeah, I have the new edition sitting on my coffee table, but I haven't read it yet. I'm sure it's great too. Um, but there's a lot of really good sex ed books out there for kids and for teens. Um, for teens, there's one that's called Consent. Um, and I, the subtitle is something like The New uh, Art of Sex Ed for Teens. And it's it's very much for teens. It's got some of that like teen yeah. images in it. Um, it's short and it's to the point and it's LGBTQ plus friendly. Okay. Um, and so I really like that. That's something that I really look for in um, recommending books for kids and for teens, making sure that we're not going to send any messages that are cruel to yeah. that particular child or teen. Well, in every, every stage of life needs to hear the message a bit differently, right? Mm-hmm. We're, we're not all equal in that regard. Um, here in when Canada, anybody in Canada who's listening will remember, um, we used to have this great show and it was called Sex with Sue. And so there was Sue, and I, oh, I don't remember her last name off the top of my head, but she would take phone calls, uh-huh. and you could watch this live, and anybody could call with any question, and she never made, there was no stupid question, right? And I remember in high school, it was kind of a thing where you would call, and it would almost be like a bit of a prank, right? You thought you'd be funny, but she would answer that question with facts, and she was serious about it, and very, very matter of fact, and it was like, mm-hmm. oh, and it was great because, you know, for the first time, I remember as a, as a teenager, someone was talking about sex as they would talk about a grocery list. You know, it was just, this is how it is, and this is how you should do it, and this is na na na, and then she would de- do demonstrations. Um, so, so it was great for that. And I know right now there's um, a podcast that is a bit similar. It's called the Savage Love Cast. Yes. And uh, so, you know, people oh, call in. Yeah, right. And people call in and he's the same way. There's no dumb question. Every question gets a very honest answer. And it's nice to have a platform like that where people can call because like you said, oftentimes people feel so ashamed of whatever they're feeling or whatever they're desiring. And they think that they're not normal. And, oh, I can't talk about this because I'm, you know, I'm going to be marginalized from, <laughs> from society. So it's, it's a shame that it's, how it is but hey a little bit at a time I think that uh, we're going to be able to make some changes not by we I mean society (laughs) (laughs) language pathologists us specifically (laughs) that's right um do you have any um like take-home messages for for our listeners today you know I think my big take-home message is it, it really stems from what you just said that sex can be just like any other topic that we talk about, especially when you're, when you're coming from the mindset of a clinician, it should be just like any other topic that we talk about. We should talk about it factually. We shouldn't put our own moralistic spin on it. Mm -hmm. And uh, we don't have to be uncomfortable. It doesn't have to be scary. That comes from inside our own selves, our own internalized discomfort with the topic. Um, 
if we can get past that, then really that's where the real work starts. Mm-hmm. This could be fun. This could be exciting, but we just have to get past that little eh, scary <laughs> bit first. Yeah, and I think, you know, as speech and language pathologists, we've already said we wear many hats. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not very knowledgeable in fluency disorders or stuttering disorders, right? So if I had a patient come to me and they wanted some help with fluency, I probably wouldn't be the best person to help them. So I would refer them to a colleague. So, you know, it can be as simple as that also. If you know someone Mm -hmm. who's comfortable addressing this topic and working with clients who have uh, intimacy difficulties because of communication, then just refer, you know, don't close that door. If if the door closes with you, then another one opens with someone else perhaps that can better help them. Exactly. Uh, One question that I always ask my guests, uh, because this is a podcast about communication, Uh um, is what does communication mean to you? I think communication is the ability for someone to, I knew this question was coming, but I (laughs) should have prepared for it because I've heard it on other uh, episodes. Um, uh, Communication is the ability for two people to connect mm-hmm. I, I mean, in its most basic form. It's the ability for somebody else to see you, to understand you a little bit better. Um, I got goosebumps. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I like that. Like it's the ability for two people to connect. And that is so true. You, how do you connect? And again, communication is not all oral language it's not all verbal you can communicate with someone even if you don't speak their language yeah it's eye gaze it's body Mm -hmm. language it's all of that yeah our field is so cool it is isn't it (laughs) um when I had um interviewed and I'm gonna have to pause the podcast recording because I forget uh Lauren Herman right from slp.advocate yeah Lauren Herman yes, yes When I interviewed her, we were laughing because it's like speech and language pathologist slash communication disorder slash voice slash swallowing slash, mm-hmm. you know, there are so many, it's more diverse than just speech and language. Um, it's, the, our title doesn't do it justice, but here we are. Love it. Love this job. Love that all that we can offer. Is there anything that you'd like to add? We've covered pretty much everything that I typically cover during the episodes. I am just, I'm very grateful that you've asked me to come talk with you. I've really enjoyed this and I, tell your friends, you can talk (laughs) about sex with your clients. It's okay. And they probably need. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I thank you for agreeing to be a guest on the podcast. And I'm happy to hear that um, you've been asked to talk in uh, graduate programs, especially the counseling class. We, you know, and again, as speech and language pathologists, we have one counseling class and we do Uh so much counseling. Um, But yeah, this is definitely one of those areas where 
we need more more knowledge, more training, and I'm glad to see that you're you're offering that. So thank you so much. Best of thank luck. You. I mean, it's only been oh, six weeks, you. but I'm sure it's going to take on a life of its own. Um, <laughs> That's already it's, how it's feeling. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I hope that you'll have time for all of <laughs> <Me> that. <too. laughs> um, if anybody has any questions for you specifically, I'm assuming they can message you on Instagram or on your website. Is there a... yeah. yeah. Um, also the language for sex at gmail.com. I'm trying to keep it simple. Yeah, no, I love the website. Yeah. Um, all right. So they can find you there and they can find some of the resources that we've talked about today at the parlay Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you. Bye.